Heavenly Father, you demonstrated the glory of your Son on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, It is your will that he be glorified. May my words today reflect the glory of your Son in the way that you desire that he be glorified, in the glory that he deserves, and ask these things in his name. In last week's text, Jesus predicted that some of his disciples would not taste death before the, they saw the kingdom of God. And in today's text, the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, three of those disciples get to see the king in his glory, flanked by Old Testament prophets. That must have been something to see. But you know, reading about it, for me, is sort of like hearing about a movie that somebody else saw that I didn't get to see. And uh, it, it kind of leaves something to be desired when that happens. And so why the transfiguration? Clearly, God was acting in the world in a miraculous way and toward a purpose, but... What was that purpose? Why is this event recorded in the scripture so that I can read it? What does the transfiguration have to do with my life? My walk? And what's it doing reported here in the middle of Luke's gospel? Well, up to this point in Luke's narrative, he's been focused on answering the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? This man whose arrival was foretold by the prophets and proclaimed by angels, whose ministry was preceded and announced by that of John the Baptist, this man who could heal the sick, cast out demons, and even delegate that power to other men. This man who could raise the dead back to life. This man that even the winds and the waves obeyed him. A man who claimed authority over the Sabbath and the power to forgive sins against God. Last week we heard Peter's confession, you are the Christ. Of God. Well, that was true as far as it went. Um, And so now Luke is going to move from answering the question, who is Jesus, to what is he doing? Going from the person to the work of Christ. The disciples know, or think they know, the mission of the Christ of God. In fact, even in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they're going to they're say to him, or chapter 1, verse 6, they're going to say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, this transfiguration, situated at this turning point in Luke's gospel, serves three important functions that help to move us from the indicatives of who Jesus is to the imperatives of where is he leading us 
And what does he demand of us? The first of these functions, the first function of the transfiguration is to provide us with a view of ultimately where are we going? Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. After these sayings. What sayings were those? Luke chapter 9, verses 22 to 23. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now just in case there's any doubt that these were the kind of words the apostles wanted to hear, we have a direct quote of Peter's response in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I wonder what Jesus might have been praying about when he took Peter and James and John with him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Notice in verse 32 that Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Do you remember another episode where Jesus took those same three disciples, Peter and James and John, with him to pray, and they fell asleep? Let's listen to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 32 to 38. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you ever considered the possibility that Jesus, who counseled persistence in prayer, may have made that prayer to his Father on more occasions than one? Jesus didn't want to suffer and die 
any more than his apostles wanted him to suffer, nor wanted to suffer the same fate. And even you and I on the other side of the cross and resurrection don't relish suffering nor death. Can I suggest to you that maybe Jesus' prayer, as his steps turn toward suffering and death in Jerusalem, may have been the same prayer that he prayed in the garden? Now, even though the apostles weren't awake to hear that prayer, someone was awake. That someone was listening. And that someone sent an answer to Jesus' prayer. And it was the answer that Jesus needed to hear. Luke chapter 9, verses 29 through 31. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now first, let's turn our attention to the change in the face of Jesus. Doesn't that remind you of something that happened in the Old Testament? Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all, that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Wherever, Jesus, wherever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Jesus also wore a veil most of his earthly life. In fact, this episode is the only time we see him without it. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 7, Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Moses, through close contact with God, was given a borrowed radiance, borrowed glory, this radiance, the glory that Jesus exhibited on the Mount of Transfiguration, was the glory that belonged to him by virtue of who, who he was, is, and always will be. Glory that was temporarily veiled in his earthly form. 
That's what the apostles got a glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration. Next, I want to point out to you the two men that arrive in response to Jesus' prayer. And behold, two men were talking with him. Now, on two more occasions in Luke's narrative, he mentions a similar sudden appearance of two men from heaven dressed in white. The first occurs at the empty tomb as the women who had come with him from Galilee go to anoint his dead body. Luke chapter 24, verses 2 to 7, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they were in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling appearance. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to him, said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while you were still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. The message of these two unnamed men, probably angels, um, is similar to the message that Jesus uh, was given by the heavenly companions on the Mount of Transfiguration. The suffering and death of Jesus was a necessary prelude to his resurrection. Another episode occurs in Acts immediately after the ascension. Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Again, Jesus had departed when his disciples would prefer that he remain. This departure too, the angels assure him, is not the end, but a necessary prelude to his return and earthly reign. But in this transfiguration narrative, these two individuals are not angels, but men. And two men in particular. Verses 30 to 31, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now you notice that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. But these men are men. They're not angels. They don't have a glory of their own. Their glory reflects having been in the presence of God. Now how could these two sinful men, great prophets though they were, stand in the presence of Almighty God but for the suffering and death that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Our Lord got the answer to his prayer. The cup would not be removed before he drank from it. All that he must suffer must and will happen 
before he is restored to the glory that he shared with the Father from before the world began. So the first function of the transfiguration is to provide Jesus, his disciples, and us with a view of what we have in our future. Glory with the king. That's where we're ultimately headed. The second function of the transfiguration is to provide us with a wake-up call. Luke chapter 9, verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Jesus foretold this appearance, uh, foretold his rejection um, and uh, um, suffering under the high priests and the, and the people about eight days before this episode. And he's going to repeat that same warning the next day. He'd gone up to the mountain to pray because he was distressed and sorrowful and troubled, and yet the disciples were sleeping when they should be praying. Now, why do you think Moses and Elijah were the two people that appeared on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus? Well, these two prophets are mentioned in the very final prophecy of the Old Testament, immediately preceding 400 years of silence that would only be broken when John's voice broke it to proclaim its impending fulfillment. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law that my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike them with the decree of utter destruction. Moses was a special prophet. As the Lord declares to Aaron and Miriam when they dared to challenge his authority. Numbers chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Likewise, 
the Lord spoke plainly and in person to Elijah on the same mountain where he had previously spoken with Moses. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses, verse, chapter 19, verses 8 through 9. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Moses and Elijah were not sent to the Mount of Transfiguration at random. They were the two prophets specifically chosen to announce the coming of the ultimate prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses speaking, like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you should listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. The prophet like Moses has come. The prophet who is more than a prophet, has spoken. And what has he said? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now the carrying of the cross was the immediate precursor to execution. But I think we've heard these words so many times that they've lost their force. Let me put it in a more modern idiom. If anyone would follow Jesus, let him strap himself into the electric chair daily and follow him. Or if anyone would follow Jesus, let him slip the noose around his neck and follow him. Jesus is here demanding radical self-sacrifice to the shedding of blood. How are we doing with that? Have we been busy denying ourselves and following Jesus? Or is that something that maybe we're planning on doing tomorrow or someday? As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 2,000 years seems like a long time for the Lord to tarry. But salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. When the Lord of the harvest arrives, how will we account for the use of our time that has been given to us to serve his cause in a fallen world? 
The second function of the transfiguration is to serve as a wake-up call. The third function of the transfiguration is to correct our natural tendency to inertia. Luke chapter 9, verses 33 to 36. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one of these in those days anything of what they had seen. So Peter, James, and John found themselves on a mountainside basking or basking in the revealed glory of Jesus and the two of their Old Testament heroes. But Moses and Elijah were leaving. What could they do to prolong this glorious moment? It seems pretty clear from reading the text that Peter's response was not quite appropriate. I mean, Luke says he didn't know what he was doing. And the voice that comes to the cl- from the cloud doesn't exactly say, attaboy, Peter. Okay? So, what was wrong about Peter's suggestion that he put booths up for Jesus and his two guests? Well, remember, the disciples had been sleeping while the conversation was going on between Jesus and the uh, Old Testament prophets, and those prophets had been speaking about Jesus' departure, which he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, I know most of you don't know a lot of Greek, but you know the word that he used for departure here. That word is exodus. And talking about Exodus in the presence of Moses strongly suggests some sort of a connection with the Exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. When the Exodus had been accomplished, God instituted a feast to celebrate the deliverance of the people from Egypt. It was called the Feast of Booths. And on the Feast of Booths, booths would be built by the Israelites with the ingathering of the harvest and the vineyard to commemorate and celebrate this great event. Now, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, after the arrival of the day of the Lord, as prophesied by the return of Elijah, then... Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Maybe Peter was seeking to inaugurate this tradition. But the exodus of Jesus 
had not yet happened. Like Moses' view of the promised land, which he would never enter from Mount Pisgah, the transfiguration was a preview, not a consummation of the arrival of the kingdom. At the base of the mountain, there was still a faithless and twisted generation with which Jesus would need to bear for yet a little longer. It was not yet time for the ingathering of the harvest. Now, we've seen that cloud before. This is the cloud of presence. It covered Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. And it covered, filled the tabernacle at its consecration, and subsequently the temple in the days of Solomon. It would lead the people of Israel in the wilderness, and this same cloud would eventually take Jesus up into heaven. And, according to the prophecy of the angels of the ascension, Daniel and the Lord himself, this same cloud would carry him back at his second coming. And we've also heard the voice that spoke from the cloud before. This is the same voice that spoke to both Moses and Elijah on Mount Horeb. This same voice spoke at the baptism of Jesus with very similar words, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, that voice speaks to his disciples, and that voice speaks to us. This is my Son my chosen one. Listen to him. The son is a messianic reference. Hearkening back to Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The chosen one, on the other hand, is a reference to the suffering servant of the Lord from Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom I delight. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, if the disciples had been sleeping previously, they were wide awake and terrified at this point. If they missed what Moses and the prophets had said, no matter. They said what Jesus had said, what the angels will echo. Listening to Jesus is more important than listening to Moses, more important than meeting the requirements of the law, which he delivered. 
Listening to Jesus is more important than heeding the warnings that Elijah and the prophets who followed him delivered. Moses, the prophets, the angels, Yahweh himself, all point to Jesus. After the voice, Jesus was the only one there. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. And that prophet has declared, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As God's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, he will break the nations with a rod of iron. He will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, but he is also the suffering servant of God. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected. And his followers must suffer with him. The servant is not greater than the master. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Those who wish to have a share in the glory of his kingdom that we have seen here today must have a share in the suffering that is to come. That would include Peter and James and John, and that includes us as well. The transfiguration provides us with a view of the glory of Christ, where we are ultimately headed, but it also provides us with a wake-up call. The exhilarating experience of the three disciples on the mountain of transfiguration inaugurated them into the company of God's mighty servants of old, soon they too would accomplish great things for God. But they would not do it on a mountain. They would do it in a Roman dungeon, in exile, at the wrong end of a Herodian sword. The transfiguration also gives us a corrective against our natural tendency to inertia. When we first experienced the new birth, baptized into the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we have a natural desire to remain right where we are, rejoicing in what we have experienced. We want to stay immobile. In the light of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But the mountain transfiguration experience was not for the sole benefit of Peter, James, and John, it was to prepare them for service to a fallen world around them. 
our new birth is exactly the same. It is not for us and for our sole benefit. We have to move on to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, if it is possible for us to follow Jesus into glory without drinking overmuch from the cup of his suffering, then let that cup pass us by. But thy will be done. Give us the strength to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, his rule and his reign. Allow us to reflect his glory someday. We ask this in his name.